The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Have you ever heard of the website Snopes.com? Yeah, some people should probably visit it more often. Now, have you heard of it? It's, um, it's like a fact checker website. So, you know, you, you read something and you're like, hey, Wow. And so you can go to Snopes to make sure it's real before you post it on Facebook and embarrass yourself, right? It's, uh, so I looked this week, and evidently United Airlines denied a passenger's request to fly with an emotional support peacock. <laughs> Did anyone else see that one? So I had to check that one. And evidently that is true. That one is true. So I don't know how you feel about United after this. Um, I'm not an expert on emotional support animals. But there might be better options than a peacock. But uh, it made me think, you know, really the Bible is kind of the ultimate Snopes.com. And that you're going to hear things about God. You're going to hear things about what it means to live the Christian life. Should you fact check some of those things? Yeah, you should. Um, so if you listen to some versions of Christianity, you could get the idea that if you become a Christian and you live a really nice life of kindness, uh, that God will bless you, and your life will get easier, and everyone will like you. Uh, should we fact check that one? <laughs> Let's look. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> so fact check on that one. False. Everyone, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the Bible tells us in many times and in many ways that though it won't be the same exactly for every individual, the bottom line is if you live a life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ in some way, at some time, in some way, there will be pain for that. You'll be persecuted for it in some way. Uh, we've been going through 1 Peter, and we're getting towards the end, and you heard in our passage today what Peter called the fiery trial. It's the same idea. It's, uh, it's facing pain for living a life that's faithful to Jesus. Peter calls it a fiery trial. And the Greek word he uses is worth pointing out because it might sound familiar. It's something like pyrosis. You heard that one? Pyro? Okay. Pyrosis, and the word means the burning by which metals are roasted and reduced. That's great for metals, okay? Would you like to enjoy personally some pyrosis? <laughs> the fiery trial. Why is it called that? Why does Peter, I mean, Peter's writing these churches, and they're enduring hard times and pain for following Christ, and Peter says, it's a pyrosis, it's a fiery trial. Why does he use this word? And anybody who's experiences this know why he, knows why he used the word. Because that's how it feels. That's how it feels. So the big question for Peter's audience, he's writing in first century church, uh, they're experiencing persecution. The big question for Peter's audience is, how do we handle this? How do we handle this? 
And if you've ever experienced anything like this, you know it's easy to respond to persecution with shock or discouragement. Um, you feel like you're doing everything wrong, or it's easy to be filled with self-pity. Maybe you deserve better, kind of take on a martyr complex, or it's easy to, to, uh, to doubt even God's care for you. Has God forgotten you to, to let you go through something like this? And so the question of how do we respond to the fiery trial is humongous. And isn't it loving of God to give this to us? Isn't it loving? Because he's already told us, right, if you want to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus, there's going to be pain for that somehow and in some way. And isn't it kind of God to say, it's coming, and to say, and here's what to do with it. Hang on to this in those moments. So that's what we're going to look at this morning is, uh, is what to do with it when we go through the fiery trial. So if you're not in a pyrosis right now, you know, praise the Lord. Um, just wait longer, okay? But when it comes, hang on to this so that you'll be ready. So we're gonna see five things when it comes to the fiery trial. Five things, give you a couple phrases just to remember as we go through this. The expectation, or the word expect the fiery trial, that's number one. Number two, rejoice in the fiery trial. That sounds counterintuitive, but rejoice in the fiery trial. Number three, make sure you assess your trial. Look at it, consider it, wonder about it. Number four, entrust yourself to God in that trial. And finally, number five, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus in the trial. So expect the trial, rejoice in the trial, assess the trial, entrust yourself to God in it. And then number five, remember Jesus in the trial. And we'll do that together as we take the Lord's Supper after uh, the sermon. So number one, expect it. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something, were, something strange were happening to you. I have to chuckle at this because the few times I've had a little mini pyrosis in my life, my first response is always like, how can this be? <laughs> What's happening? It's not supposed to go this way, right? God promised if I trusted him and tried to be a nice person, everyone would like me. <laughs> What verse was that again? Oh, he, he never promised that. <clears throat> Expect it. It's normal. I, I just want to bring out a few ideas here. Number one is, why is it that Christians will sometimes face the fiery trial, the pyrosis? Why is it? Uh, I want to give you a few examples just from Peter, what we've seen before. So look at verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, 3 to 4. Uh, it's just, um, just above the, the passage we're looking at today. There Peter, uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 3, there Peter says this, For the time is past that suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So, so what's going on with this church? Uh, they, they used to live these crazy lives, right? They had some amazing testimonies, these people. They used to do these things. Now they've given their lives to Christ, and they can't do what they used to do. 
They can't work, follow idolatry the same way they used to follow it. They can't have the same habits they used to have. And so when they stop doing those things they used to do, what's the response from some of their friends, their social network, their businesses? You get maligned. You get outcast. You get pushed away. Uh, it's really interesting to read um, his, historical evidences that even to belong to a business guild or union in the ancient world, they had, they had like an, an idol to represent that, that business. And so you'd go to your business meeting, and, and part of your business meeting was worshiping this idol. And then all of a sudden, you're like, I don't do that. Any- I can't worship the idol anymore. I'd still like to be part of the business. I can't worship the idol. And they say, if you, if you don't worship the idol, it's like you're rejecting us. You're rejecting our company. You're rejecting our product. And so you're maligned. You're maybe even fired. And so you see, one way you're going to walk into the fiery trial is when you can't do what you used to do anymore. Or there's something that someone's calling you to do, and you say, I, I cannot do this because I follow Jesus. I can't participate in this because I belong to Jesus. When you say no to something the world wants to push you into, guess what's probably gonna come? The fiery trial. That's one way we walk into this fire. A second way we walk into this fire, you can see it in 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15. 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15, there Peter writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see two things in these verses. One is, we live for righteousness. So it's, Christians don't just live a life where it's like, well, these are sinful things. I don't want to do them. I want to honor Jesus, so I don't do what's evil. We also live a life where we're called to love. And we're called to do what is good. We're called to stand up for what is right. We're called to speak out. We're, we're called to, to, to work in areas of justice. We're called to, to serve. And so sometimes you'll be called by Jesus to do something, and you start to engage in that, and what might you face? The fiery trial. Moreover, it's not just righteousness you want to live in this verse. It's what you need to say. What are we called to talk about? as Christians to the world. What are, what are we supposed to tell people about? We're supposed to tell them about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Uh, yes, we wanna be winsome, we wanna be kind, we wanna be gracious, we wanna be listening. Yes, yes, yes. But sometimes when you talk about this, like for instance in our own world, if you say, d- d- remember what Jesus said, John fourteen six, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said that. Those are heavy words. Those are huge words. If those words are true, that means he's everything. Well, if you, if you go out in a culture like ours and, and, and share those ideas, how's a culture like ours going to feel about you saying, you know the one way to God? They're going to say, whoa, that's uh, closed-minded. That's bigoted. That's narrow. Now, now we have arguments for this, right? He, listen, he, he's the only one who claimed to be God and claimed to be without sin, and he's the only one who could stand in our place and, and die on the cross for us. Yeah, he's the only one. It's not, it's not our cockiness that's saying that. It's because we've discovered who he is, and we want to share it with you. But nonetheless, right, if you do what you're called to do, what might you face? The pyrosis, the fiery trial. So just, just two categories here of living Life for Jesus, there are things the world's gonna want you to do. You you have to say, no, I can't do that, fiery trial. Or there's things Jesus calls you to practice, to do, and the world says, don't do that, and you're gonna have to do it anyway, and what do you walk into? 
the fiery trial. Now, uh, here we are in modern America. If you read stories about what's happening to the church in the Middle East, or uh, I, have a, I have a good friend who's a church planner in Southeast India, you read stories about what's happening to those people, and you sit here and you think in uh, modern Orange County, we've never walked through the fiery trial. We don't even know what it is. <laughs> um, and yet, I think Peter's so kind here. I want to show you the kind of trial this church was going through. Look at through just um, a couple verses. 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are, what? Insulted. insulted. Just insulted. Or 1 Peter 4, 4. We saw this already. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Or 1 Peter 3, 16. When you are slandered. So in this context, does it seem like these people are being killed for their faith? There's, there's nothing really like that in here. What's happening to them as they live for Jesus? Insulted, maligned, slandered. It's just words, right? Sticks and stones can break your bones and words. Words are the fiery trial. It hurts. Words hurt. He's talking about what people will say about you. And that in context is the fiery trial. And so that gives you, it includes our experience. What people say about you can be the fiery trial, and if you've ever had it happen to you, you know it's kind of like, it's kind of pyrosis, right? Well, the last thing to see is, um, should, we sh- should we be shocked when we go through the fiery trial? <laughs> Peter's so kind. Uh, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Is it strange when Christians who are serious about living for Jesus face the fiery trial? You still think it's strange, don't you? Is it strange? It's normal. Guess what, folks? Buckle up. Buckle up. If you want to live for Jesus... Guess what you need to be ready for? Get ready for the fiery trial. It's coming. You're gonna walk through it. Hopefully it'll just be what people say about you one time. Uh, It it might be more than that. But there's gonna be a time and a place in your life when God says, no, don't do that. And the world says, you gotta do this. And you're gonna have to make a choice. And there's gonna be a time and a place in your life when God calls you to say or to do or be something. And and the situation around you is gonna be like, don't you say or do or be that. And you have to be ready for the fiery trial. It's normal. This is the normal Christian life. Expect it. It helps just to uh, change our expectations, doesn't it? Just to know. Just to know it's real, that it's, that it's part of what it means to be a Christian. Isn't that kind of God? So we're not just walking around shocked. And No, this is, this is, this is what the Christian life is like sometimes. The question that came to my mind here is, Are we living the kind of life that's persecutable? You know what I mean by that? Are we living the kind of life that's persecutable? Did you ever uh, read C.S. Lewis' screw tape letters? Anybody? Ah, You should read it, okay? But there he's um, a lot lot of great lessons just in his imaginary uh, way of describing how, how demons interact with the world. It's very good. 
But I, I had that same kind of imagination. Say, say, say there was a demon like that in charge of uh, persecution here at Fountain of Life. And they, and they walked through, and uh, they were like, oh, there's Matt. Uh, and, and what would they say? What would that one say? W- would, would he say, you know what? He's not really that different than the world around him. We really don't have anything to worry about from him. Just leave him alone. Move on. Do you hear the question I want you to ask about yourself? Do I actually stand out enough in my faithfulness to Christ that I might actually face the fiery trial one day? Or do I look so much like everybody else that the demon might walk by and be like, I I think they're just a Mormon. They were nice. They're not really causing... It's not really causing any problems. Uh, or they, they, don't, they, they look like everybody else. We want to ask ourselves, am I, in a, in a text like this, am I living a life where one day uh, the, the fiery trial might be a reality for me because I'm devoted to Christ, because I want to live for him? First thing, expect it. Second thing, rejoice. Rejoice in the fiery trial. Look at verse 13. But rejoice, Does the Bible ever frustrate you with this stuff? You read Philippians, right? Paul's in prison. And he writes over and over and again, rejoice. And and, and James says it, and it's in Romans. You know, when you suffer, rejoice. Does anybody, anybody, do you just want to pull your hair out sometimes? Peter, you just called this a fiery trial. It's pyrosis. And now you're telling me to be happy. How do you do that? And do, you got, do any of you have the rejoice button where you just hit it and you're like, oh, my hard circumstances aren't bothering me anymore. Or, or you get the idea where we're almost like masochists and we're like, for God to be pleased with me, I've got to be suffering. How do I get into some? What does it mean to rejoice Listen, look at what he says in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that wants you to rejoice in pain or suffering for its own sake. That's ridiculous. But there is something about suffering for Jesus that can bring you joy. And the part of it is that it's for Jesus. Paul writes about this in Philippians. I want to share in his sufferings. Think about what, did Jesus ever face the pyrosis? Did he have people saying awful things about him, constantly following him, ripping him up, slandering him? And did he face the physical pyrosis, right? The fiery trial. As when you're suffering for Jesus, even in a small way, you think on him and you remember him and what he's done. And, and the way it sounds here is this sharing. There's a closeness with Jesus that you can experience when you're suffering for Jesus. You can remember what he's done for you and know his compassion for you and his presence with you. And this sense of knowing you belong to him. You're his Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Can you find any joy in there? To know that you belong to God in such a way that you'd be 
persecuted in some small way like Jesus was. So the joy here that's found is that connection with Christ, that deeper connection of being seen as named with him, belonging to him, treated as he was in some small way. It's all about the beauty of who he is and your belonging to that. Rejoice in him as you suffer for him. There's something, very, uh, something else very interesting in these verses. Look, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you know what happens in a so that, right? This, so that. So the, the so that in this sentence is, don't you want to rejoice when his glory is revealed? When Jesus comes back and everybody sees him for who he is, don't you want to be like, yay! And don't you want him to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You made it, you were true, you were faithful. Don't you want to hear that? I do, okay? There's a so that. There's something now that gets you to that later. And Peter is saying, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice now that you may rejoice later. It's really important that you rejoice in your pyrosis now so that you can keep rejoicing later. Think about it. What's the danger of not rejoicing in Christ when you suffer for Christ? What's the danger? The danger is if you don't rejoice in who he is, uh, you won't have any motivation to keep suffering for him. If, if he doesn't thrill you with who he is and his love and his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his friendship and his faithfulness, if he's not enough for your heart in the midst of that pyrosis, that fiery trial, if he's not enough, at some point you'll be like, I've had enough of the trial. All right, fine. I don't, wanna, I don't need to follow Jesus anymore. Do you see that? You'll, you'll quit. You'll give up. You'll compromise. You'll leave it. And so it's real important, Peter says here, make sure your heart's hanging on to the sufficiency of Jesus for you. Rejoice now so that you can keep going and keep being faithful. And when he returns, oh yeah, the greater joy will flood you. So the first thing, expect the fiery trial. The second thing, rejoice in Christ and who he is, and who you are, you are in him, your connection with him, your intimacy with him. Rejoice in your fellowship with him as you experience the trial. Third one, assess the trial. Look at verse 15. So Peter's writing to Christians. Some of them are suffering for being Christians. Verse 15, he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Does anybody get a little, uh, a little chuckle when you think of this? Why does he have to say that to Christians? Hey, I know some of you are suffering, but make sure it's not because you're a murderer. <laughs> hmm. There's at least one idea here, and it's this. I'll, I'll put it in the form of a question. You think it's possible for Christians to think they're suffering for Jesus when they're actually suffering for being jerks? I should probably ask it one more time. Do you think it's possible for Christians to think they're suffering for Jesus when they're actually suffering for being jerks? It's absolutely possible. Peter's naming it right here. Sometimes when you're in the fiery trial, and it's usually relational, right? People are saying things about you. 
It's easy to jump into the self-righteous, well, it's just because I'm living the true Christian life. Or it's easy to jump into the martyr thing of they're all wrong, but I'm, I'm the one who lives the truth the way it's supposed to be lived. And Peter says, make sure you evaluate this a little bit. Make sure. Uh, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Now, I want to expand this a little bit. I'm not sure Peter thinks that the church actually has like mass murderers coming to service every week. Um, Remember when Jesus talked about murder in Matthew 5, he expanded it quite a bit. You've heard it said, don't murder. And most of us, I hope, are like, finally, one command I've kept. Sweet. I can check one out of 10. And he says, but I tell you, uh, if you've ever insulted or hated someone, demeaned their humanity and how you've talked and felt about them, you've committed murder. Oh. I'm back to zero. <laughs> I'm back to zero commands I've kept perfectly. Is it possible that Christians can be um, cursing and insulting in the way they talk with the spirit of murder towards other people? And it comes out in the way they interact with other people, and then other people malign and slander and insult them, and the Christian's like, I'm just suffering for the Lord. And Peter's like, you're suffering because you're a murderer. Or how about this one, a thief? Right? Paul in Romans 12, I'm not going to, you don't have to quote it in detail, but he says, owe nothing to anyone except love. So if, if, you don't, if you don't treat your workers right, you're stealing. If you don't offer somebody uh, to someone what God says you owe them, you're, you're stealing. You're withholding love that you owe them. Is it possible for a Christian to be stealing in some way from people around them and then they get slain or maligned and insulted? I'm suffering for the Lord. No, you're, you're suffering because you're a thief. And then Peter throws out the word evildoer. So what's in that, what's in that drawer? You know, read the Bible, right? I mean, it's just everything the Lord wants for his people. Don't suffer from not doing that. Or the third one's even the most interesting. Let none of you suffer as a meddler. A meddler. What is a meddler? Uh, this, this Greek word's uh, only once in the New Testament, I think. Uh, I looked at a few commentaries about it. It has something to do with getting into people's business where you don't really belong and making trouble about it. Overextending kind of your place of uh, influence. Wanting to say too much. One commentator thought it was actually being um, too much of a political revolutionary. Because if you remember Peter, he says, submit to the government, submit to your Submit to your boss, submit in family. We, we're supposed to have an attitude of submission in all these different places in our lives, a humble service. And so this word is kind of like a, I'm gonna get in your mess and I'm gonna tell you, um, person in culture, I'm gonna tell you how to run your life and how to run this. I'm, I'm gonna get up in you and, and condemn you and, and I'm gonna make noise. I'm gonna upset society. I'm gonna be obnoxious. I'm gonna be overly confrontational. And Peter says, let none of you suffer as a a meddler. It has to do with your, uh, your method, the way you talk. Is it possible to be right and wrong at the same time? Because you're wrong about how you're right? The Bible tells us over and over again, don't be quarrelsome. Can you be right in a quarrel? Yeah. And then your method of talking about how right you are becomes wrong? And so we could easily suffer as meddlers, could we, couldn't we? 
gonna give you a few verses just for the feel of this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Paul says to the church, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You get the feel of a, of a quiet, peaceful life there? Or look at 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. Uh, Pray for rulers that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What kind of life do we want to lead? Peaceful and quiet. Or 1 Peter 3, 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with what? Gentleness and respect. So meddler is somebody who's kind of lost the gentleness and the respect and the quiet and the dignified. And uh, it's another way, Peter says, listen, just because you're in the fiery trial, make sure it's... Make sure you're not suffering uh, for your own errors. Make sure you're suffering for the right thing. Verse 16, 1 Peter 4, 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So we wanna assess our suffering, and if you, if you look and you see, hey, murderer, thief, uh, evildoer, meddler, if you see any of that, what should you do? Apologize. Apologize. Be forgiven. Say you're sorry. You know, some of the best opportunities we have as Christians to glorify Jesus in our lives is when we say to the world and the people around us, um, we were wrong and we're sorry. Will you please forgive us? Apologize. But then if you land on verse 16, I'm suffering as a Christian, do you need to be ashamed if you suffer as a Christian? Don't be ashamed. Glorify God in that name. It's an honor. All right, so the first one was expect suffering. What was the second one? Rejoice in Christ in your suffering. What was the third one? Assess your suffering. Make sure you're suffering for the right thing. And number four, entrust yourself to God. Look at verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God be? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, how many of you at first glance do you think that's a scary verse? It sounds awful. Judgment is to begin at the household of God, and the righteous is scarcely saved. So doesn't it sound like in that language? It's like even the best of you are just barely going to make it. At the end, God's gonna be like, yeah. I could go either way. All right. Scarcely saved. That's the idea that at first glance this text gives you. And I've, I have seen this text horribly misused. Horribly misused. Somebody look at something they don't like about Christians or the church and be like, judgment begins with the household of God. And um, almost as if we're in line for God's eternal judgment first. Is that what he's saying here? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I'll try to prove it to you. Uh, but first, let me give you, again, a little context. As we've been going through Peter, do you get the idea that as he talks about this church, he's like, I don't know if any of you are gonna be saved. Is that the way he's been talking? Let's just remember, 1 Peter 1, verse three. 1 Peter 1, this, verse three. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How do you feel as you read that? Yeah. Yeah, praise God. He's changed me. Uh, he's keeping an inheritance for me. He's guarding me. He's going to get me through. Do you get any of the, uh, I don't know if you're going to make it? No, not at all. Again, just context. Back to 1 Peter 4. He said, judgment will begin with the household of God. What's a household of God? This goes, this is the temple. And now the temple's not a building, it's People who know Jesus and worship him together. You're the household of God. And then look at this next really important word. Verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with, what's that next word? You gotta look in your book for that one. Us. Us. Who's that word include? Everybody believes in Jesus. It includes the, the Christians reading this letter. And there's one more person includes who wrote this. Peter wrote it. He's including himself in that word. Is he saying, here I am, God's apostle, I'm not sure if I'm really gonna be saved? No, that's not what he's saying. In context, folks, there's, it's, a, it's a tale of two judgments. Remember, um, what is God allowing us to walk through sometimes as we're faithful to Christ? The fiery trial, right? Is that, um, is that the kind of judgment that says, I don't know if you belong to me, or is that the kind of difficulty that refines you because you belong to him? Look back, back at 1 Peter 1, verse 5. Peter's talked about this idea before. 1 Peter 1, verse 5, he says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been what? Grieved by various trials. Verse seven, why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may, found, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see how Peter is talking about this fiery trial, this testing, this pyrosis, this judgment? It's a refining judgment for believers. Um, it's a hard translation of these lines. One commentator said it's God saves his people through hardship. What did Jesus say? In this world you will have, remember, trouble. Is it a biblical idea that God uses hard times in the lives of his people to refine them, to make them more like Jesus, to bring them to himself? It's a constant theme. And so this is a tale of two judgments. Peter's saying, this is not a judgment of God's wrath or condemnation or abandoning you. This is God's judgment of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use these hard times sovereignly over your life to, to increase the way you look like Jesus. 
to humble you, to bring out his character in you, to glorify him in the world through you. And if he saves us through hardship, Peter's rhetorical question is, well, how bad do you think judgment will be for those who do not obey the gospel? And here's is very serious, right? What's the gospel? It's, it's who Jesus is and what he's done. Who is he? He's the, he's the son of God who came and took on, put on human flesh for us, right? What did he do? Three big things. He lived a perfect life in our place. Have you lived a perfect life and always kept God's commands? Me neither. There's one who did it. The Lord Jesus did it. And, and then he went to a cross, right? And on that cross, he took upon himself the wrath, the judgment we deserve. He died on the cross for our sins. And then the third thing, he rose from the dead in victory. God was saying, it's right, it's true. He's the savior, he's the one. Come to me through him. So what does it mean to obey the gospel? It's to trust yourself to Jesus. It's to, say, I, it's to say to God, I cannot lead myself or own myself or define myself anymore. I'm looking to you. It's to say to God, I can't save myself. I can't atone for what I've done. I need you. And to trust in him and what he's done. And what, is, what does God give you when you trust Jesus? He gives you the, the perfect standing of the perfect life that Jesus lived so that you trust him. God sees you as perfect, as right, as if you never messed it up. He gives you what Jesus did on the cross. Wouldn't you like to know all your sins are forgiven, washed away? That's yours through obeying the gospel, trusting what Jesus has done. And aren't you glad to know Jesus, your king, he reigns now, he's coming back, okay? So to obey the gospel is to trust him. It's to have God's wrath removed. It's over, it's gone, because Jesus took it in your place. Okay, then what does it mean to not obey the gospel? To not obey the gospel is to look at what Jesus has done and say, I don't want it. It's to look at who he is and say, I don't need it. Which means, according to this, the biblical worldview, is when you stand before Jesus when he comes back and all the evil we've done and thought and said, and, 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 and we have to answer for that, it means that you're on your own and there's no one there to stand for you. And so Peter's question is, man, if God's people who obey the gospel are saved through hard times, how will the judgment be for people who don't have Jesus standing for them? How will that look? And what's the answer? It'll, it'll look terrible. It'll look like eternal judgment. It's, the Bible says it's hell. So what are we supposed to do with this tale of two judgments idea. As you're walking through the fiery trial, if you've trusted in the gospel and you know then that all of God's wrath is removed from you in Jesus Christ and that he's bought you, then how can you respond to this issue of the test, the trial? Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do what? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator. If you trust the gospel that Jesus lived for you, died for you, rose for you, and you belong to God through him, then no matter what life brings, what, what can you trust about that circumstance? 
He's got you. He's got you. He loves you. Look at verse 19. What, what do you see about your suffering? First thing, let there, therefore let those who suffer, what's the next phrase? According to God's will. If you, if you trust Jesus and you belong to him, when you suffer the fiery trial, is it a chaotic accident? Does God look and see you and go, oh my gosh, I forgot to rule this section of the universe for a moment. I had no idea. Or can you say, you know what, this is from my father's hand. Does it help you to know the fiery trial is in the hand of your father? It helps me a lot. What does it mean? It means there's meaning in it. He's doing something good in it. It means that it's controlled. It's only gonna go as far as he lets it go. It means you can submit to him and rest in him through it. Not only that, it says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. What does it tell you that, uh, what does it remind you of that God is creator? Weak or strong? Way strong. Wise or foolish? Wise. Strong, wise, and not only that, faithful. What does faithful mean? Is this how your salvation works? He's gonna walk along with you for a while. You've been saved for a while, and okay, and you're growing, and you're learning, and then the fiery trial comes, and, and, and God's just, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna walk with you anymore. Does he leave people in the ditch like that? Is that the kind of God we have? Does he, uh, does he take you 20 years, but not 30? Is, is he with you in the good times, or the bad times come, and he's like, oh, I got other people to worry about? Is that what he's like? Or is he faithful? Is does he ever quit on you? If he gave his son for you and you're his child through Jesus Christ, does he ignore you or, or give up on you? Never. He's faithful. He doesn't quit. He's gonna stick it to the end. He's never gonna stop giving you exactly what you need, giving you himself. Can you trust a God like that? Can you trust him? That's why this point says, when you're in the fiery trial, this judgment is for your good, so trust him. This test is for your good, trust him. So when you're in the fiery trial, you wanna live a faithful life for Jesus, the first thing was, what? Expect it. Is it strange or normal? Normal. Number two, rejoice in it. Because you like pain? No. Because you rejoice in Jesus. And you're experiencing what he experienced, and he's with you and for you. Uh, third one, expect it, rejoice in it. What was the third one? Assess it. Make sure you're suffering for Jesus and not suffering for being a jerk. Assess it. Fifth one, entrust yourself in it. Trust yourself to God who's sovereign over it. And the last one is, remember Jesus. Hey, let me just show you one word, verse 12. What's the first word of this whole paragraph start with? 
Chapter 4, verse 12. Somebody tell me, first word. Beloved. And we've seen this before. But um, how would you feel if I called you beloved every Sunday? Maybe I should get into this. <laughs> beloved. And uh, if you're a visitor, you'd be like, why does he talk like the King James Bible? Or uh, you, you might, it might make you crinkle your forehead. What? What, is it, what does it mean to be beloved? That's a word you only use in church. Beloved. It means you who are loved. And the amazing thing is that the title is, it's a title for a group of people that has nothing to do with what these people have done. Uh, imagine, a, you know, there's a football game today, I think. Um, there's, they have team names, okay? You got things like Vikings, Eagles, Patriots. The, that's probably the best one. Uh, <laughs> but they're all ideas or names of teams where the team, what does it give you? You know, they're, they're strong, they can accomplish, they can vanquish their enemies, and maybe if there was a Christian football team, imagine it had beloved on it. <laughs> and first of all, that wouldn't be very intimidating, I think, to that. But to know yourself as the, one who, the ones who are loved. And here's the reality of it. Your identity is defined by how somebody else feels about you. And that's what needs to sink in. As a Christian, your identity is defined by what somebody else thinks and feels about you and by what somebody else has done for you. And the bottom line is, if you've trusted Jesus Christ to save you and you wanna to belong to him, guess what your name is, your best name, the most accurate title for you, guess who you are? You're loved. You're loved. Now go ahead and raise objections. I don't deserve to be loved. I've messed this up. I'm still messing it up. You're still loved. Don't forget the gospel. Who lived the perfect life? Anybody in this room? Oh, Jesus, yeah. Who pays for your sins? Jesus. Who rose from the dead to bring you to God? Jesus, so based on who he is and what he's done, you are who you are. You are loved. In the midst of your mistakes and your mess and your doubt and your concern and your confusion and being upside down and not knowing what to do, you're loved. And as you remember him, doesn't that change the whole aspect on the fiery trial? Is Jesus worth suffering for in some small way? Yes. Is he going to be enough to get you through the pyrosis? Yes. Is he going to leave you there forever or with no reason? No. You're loved. You're loved. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us your son. We thank you for the great love we know in him. Lord, we pray that 
anybody in here who doesn't know you like this, they would just turn their, the keys of their life over to you and trust Jesus as their king, as their savior. And Lord, for those of us who have, have been living this for a while, help us to do it again, Lord, just to uh, surrender to you and your great love for us. We pray, Lord, that as we go out from here in your love, we would wanna live lives of faithfulness for you, uh, that we would expect the, the fiery trial will come, uh, and it's okay, that we would rejoice in you when we walk through it, that we would assess ourselves and make sure, Lord, that we are glorifying you well in it, Lord, that we would, um, and that, that we would entrust ourselves to you through it, knowing your great love for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.